And I'm delighted that you guys are here. I know that there are more fun things to be doing on a winter afternoon than coming to extra lectures. But I think I, I'm very invested and interested in my topic, needless to say, or I wouldn't have volunteered to do it. Hi. So the first thing I want to, let me give an overview of what, I, what we're going to talk about for this hour. And I invite input. We're going to talk about how we stack up in international comparisons from the OECD and other sources of health care, health outcomes, and what are some of the issues we have around disparities. So that's, that's what we're talking about. How many of you have heard at least once in the last two years that America has the best health care in the world? At honest person, thank you. <laughs> that was an ongoing uh, mantra in the Affordable Care Act debate, and it still is. America has the best health care in the world. I think that I'm going to present evidence that disavows you of that position. <laughs> we have, we do have the best health care research in the world. We have great R&D in this country. We have, although the funding has diminished by several percent a year over the last several years, and that's a big worry at NIH and other places. We have a great uh, biomedical research engine, and we do wonderful technology development, and, uh, you know, that's great. Uh, the problem is most of us can't have access to it most of the time, so that's another piece that's a little bit disingenuous. I, I always look at the Mayo Clinic ads on my TV and think, my insurance will not let me go to the Mayo Clinic, so I can't go to Minnesota and have Mayo Clinic care unless I pay for it myself, which is out of the question. So it's interesting um, the way we kind of market the best of our system. Well, the, th the first thing I want to ask you to talk about with me for a little bit is, what's health? I'm in the business of health care. What's health? I come from, I didn't even introduce myself. I come from the College of Nursing where I direct the PhD program. Uh, I have a women's health background. I've been here 28 years. Hey, so what, what's health? Any idea? We pay a lot for it. <laughs> Different theories out there, all competing. No thoughts on what is health. When you go, when you go to a health care provider, what is it you're trying to do? Yeah, okay, good. Yes. Okay, so the very first model of health care, health that we have is the biomedical model. And it is exactly, um, hmm, there we go. Uh, it is exactly that, the absence of disease, physical or emotional, right? That definition we've been working with for thousands of years. The ancient Greeks and the Egyptians mapped the innards of the body, and Harvey mapped the circulation of the body, and that was really important. And so we, we definitely, if you go see a surgeon to have something nasty cut out of you, you are definitely operating in that model, and that's a good thing, not against it. But we have found that it's not necessarily sufficient, uh, the absence of pathology, physical or psychoemotional. We moved in the 1950s into a social role definition of health. 
I'm healthy if I can do what I'm supposed to do. If I can haul myself out of bed and get to work and teach people and get home and cook dinner and, uh, you know, take care of the family, then I'm, I'm good. Any objections to a social role definition of health? Go for it. Right. I mean, you can think of a lot of exceptions. I could come to work and hack and spread germs all over you people, and you wouldn't be too happy about it, right? And you would say, I would say, I'm healthy, I came to work. And you would say, no, you're not, go away. Um, so that's a, a flaw. I could be the person that goes home from work and parks in front of the TV with my six-pack of beer and watches TV and drinks my beer and go to bed and get up the next day and go to work and do the whole same thing over and over, day in, day out. I'm doing a role, maybe not all of my roles, I'm doing a role, I would call myself functional, but you guys would look at me and say, oh, oh baby, not functional, <laughs> okay? Uh, so that is, however, research tells us that is where most people define their health. If I can do what I have to do, I'm good. Uh, and I could have some terrible pathology going on that I don't know about, I could be crazy as a bed bug, but if I, <laughs> if I do my role, uh, so there's limits to that definition, although it is in general a useful, one of the, it is a u one useful definition, but it's, it's not sufficient. The adaptation definition came to us from the biologist René Dubot in the 1960s, who said, if you can adapt to changing physical or environmental or emotional conditions, you're good. We have adapted to subhuman cold, we're good. Uh, we, we knew to not stay out there without sufficient clothing, and, uh, and uh, so we've, you know, it's not our normal climate here, but we're adapting to it, that's all good. You can adapt to bad stuff. One of the striking things I remember is that when the Berlin Wall fell, and Eastern Europe started to come out of decades of communism, one of the things we were really shocked and worried about was how polluted the air was on that side uh, to this day. People adapted to it. They went to oxygen cafes. They went to UV light places because there was so much pollution they weren't having sufficient uh, access to oxygen and light for vitamin D uh, formation. We can also adapt to horrific emotional stuff in our environment. We can be codependent, we can put up with a lot of bad stuff in our family. And so maybe it's not always a good thing, we want to be adaptable, but maybe it's not always a good thing to be too adaptable. Then in the 70s we had the definition from Maslow, a psychologist in Brooklyn, New York, Abraham Maslow, that health was attaining Self-actualization. Anybody heard of this? What is, what's self-actualization? You know? Okay, so he had a theory of needs that started out at the bottom with oxygen, water, and food, rest, and uh, moved on up to uh, safety, trust, love, and then higher needs, actualization. All of us here in the university are pursuing actualization. 
It doesn't mean that when your stomach growls, you don't think, I'm hungry. But in general, we are, you know, at a high level on this pyramid. We're not homeless people wondering where we're going to sleep tonight. We're sitting in here learning together. So that's great. But when you have the uh, tumor growing in your abdomen, you want a surgeon who's back on the biomedical model taking that out. You don't care about your actualization at that moment. So all of, and that is, that is a model of health that took a really big hit in the financial environment of the 1980s. It flourished in the 70s. That was the era when we thought, oh, let's close down our psychiatric hospitals, let everybody out, we'll take care of them in the community, it's going to be great. We had a financial constrictor and we created most of our homeless population in the process. And now we're all scratching our heads and trying to figure out what to do about it. So it's a model that required, you know, a lot of funding and it's an, a model that does not necessarily serve us well when we got a real problem going on. Well, let me also show you the WHO definition of health. <coughs> World Health Organization, Agency of the United Nations, says that circumstances and environmental factors determine whether people are healthy or not. Oop, I skipped their definition. Their definition is the highest level of well-being on physical, psychological, and social scales. Okay? So it's not just one thing, it's not just physical, it's those all three. You, you want to reach the highest level possible on physical, social, and mental or emotional scales. But they recognize, we have recognized for the last mm, 30 years, 30 years, a guy in Canada who was a parliament member identified in the 1970s that it's not just my DNA, it's not just what I do, but there are things going on in my environment that determine whether or not I'm healthy. And these are the determinants of health. So they are circumstances or environmental factors that determine whether people are healthy or not. Social and economic factors, physical factors, and your own behaviors and characteristics. If you had to drill down and think about what are some factors that could determine whether or not a person is able to be healthy, what would some of them be? Yep. Like access, access is a huge one. Yes? Yes? I saw a little bit of a, nope. Okay, okay. Okay, yes? Yep. Access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Food's huge. Very important. Yes? Yeah. The season, okay, climate. Go ahead. Okay, that goes in with access and money. They're, so these are great. They're all relevant and they all, you know, would cluster under the official list from WHO, which I'm going to show you, but I don't want anybody to think that what you said wasn't important. So the WHO list, so the, the, the public health agency in Canada was a real pioneer with this, but now WHO has taken off with it. Uh, it includes income and social status. With that gets your insurance. It's a funny thing in our country that for so many people, health insurance is tied to your job. The level of your job, the amount you get paid, the number of people working where you work, uh, 
has been tied to that until January 1 of this year. Your educational level, literacy is hugely tied to health. In countries where people are not literate, they don't understand sanitation, they, don't un they can't read products and instructions how to mix the baby food, you know, they might make it too concentrated or too weak. Um, and we have found, again, 30, 40 years ago, that when we teach mothers to read, more of their babies live to adulthood. Uh, so that's a huge piece of what we need to be doing. Nutrition, the food we can access. If you go off and look, I have my maternity students do this. Uh, I send part of them off to West Philadelphia and part of them off to Gladwin and ask them to go into a grocery store and look at quality, variety, and price of food. Who has the most expensive food, do you think? The people in Gladwin or the people in West Philly? Yeah, do you have any ideas why? Good for you. Really high demand and not a lot of places to buy food. Very limited places to go. And there's a lot of pilfering and spoilage. So uh, the, big, the big stores have pulled out of those areas. You're relying on little grocery stores. They cost more in general. And they have to charge more to make up for actually low volume and uh, wastage. So it, it's always shocking when students do that little exercise. Uh, safe, clean environment and employment opportunities combined with your employment opportunities are the conditions of work. Are you working in a place that's properly ventilated and do you have safety equipment? Um, transportation, under this safe, clean environment, you can you know, add a lot of stuff. They do. S transportation, housing, waste management, uh, energy access, industry, urbanization, water, air quality, radiation. Social support networks. There's tons of research that talks about how treatments of groups of patients, populations of patients, are enhanced. Some of the research comes out of the breast cancer literature that if they are in a social support group, their, their years of life after cancer are significantly longer than people who don't have social support. Of course, our genetics, but our genetics, we learn now, recently, we're starting to get that it's not just the DNA you got. It's what switches are turned on by interactions between stuff in the environment and stuff we eat with our genetics, genomics. More important maybe than the genes you got. Health service access and use. Uh, not only do you have to be able to get in, but it has to be enticing so that you want to get in. Right? If you have to go and sit in the ER for nine hours while they get around to you, you're likely to say, uh, I don't need that, right? Clinics can be like that. Personal health practices and coping, child development, gender, and culture. All pay a, play a part. One of the most recent, one of the most <laughs> recently identified determinants is on the list, but not clearly noted. In Canada, they voted just a few years to make transportation one of their 13 official determinants of health of their public health agency. Think about that. How many of you do not have a car? Okay, so if I told you that you had to go down to HUP for a test, how would you get there? Okay, 
One or multiple? Multiple, yeah. And what if you had to drag along, you know, three little kids because you couldn't afford a babysitter and you had to miss a day of work without pay and I told you to go down to HUP and get a test. How would that, would that seem like a reasonable thing to do? Maybe not, maybe not. So it sounds easy, transportation. I think, I'm already thinking a, a ahead to when I'm, you know, an elder. You know, Google's going to have these driverless cars. They're going to start to market them in 2020. <laughs> and I'm so excited because I know that my kid will program the car and it'll take me around to all my appointments and then it'll take me shopping and to a bingo game or something <laughs> and then bring me home and I will be totally safe. But that's going to be expensive. That's going to be expensive. Even when the prices come down, I think that will be expensive. Uh, think about now, you know, elders who don't have access to transportation themselves and, and how difficult it can be for them to get where they have to go for services. Well, one of the things we've been talking about for the last mm, years, five, five years, is how disjointed the healthcare system is in our country. Have any of you experienced healthcare where you had to go to multiple sources and they didn't communicate or your insurance didn't cover seamlessly? Anybody had an experience like that or in your family? Can you tell us briefly? Yeah, I mean, we, sh we showed up at like a, I guess a clinic and they wouldn't accept our health, health insurance. Very frustrating, right, very frustrating. I, I'm a very privileged person with excellent, you know, Blue Cross insurance. I had a little surgery a year and a half ago and my hospital was covered in my network, my surgeon was covered in my network, all good but I got a big bill from the anesthesia provider. Why? They're not in the network. Was I able to know this in advance? No, they had a monopoly on surgery at that institution. So yes, Nancy has great insurance and Nancy paid several thousand dollars for some sedation for 20 minutes, right? So that's part of what we mean. Another thing that we mean is, you know, you may have a healthcare experience, say in a hospital, say it was an emergency and then you're going to go to rehab, and then you've got to go back to your communi community, for, and you want all that information to be accessible across the board, and we are far from there yet. We don't have seamless electronic health records, and it's very difficult to get agencies to communicate accurately with one another. Well, the Affordable Care Act is, you know, one of the definitions of a camel is that it's a horse that was designed by a committee. So there's some features of the, Ameri of the Affor Affordable Care Act that are camel-like, I would say. It was definitely a compromise. You heard it go on and on for years and even after the fact. But its goal was to get 50 million people into care who did not have health insurance. Um, even after the Affordable Care Act was passed, we knew that under the best of circumstances there would still be about 10 million people, legal residents or citizens of this country who were not going to have uh, coverage for health care. We're the only developed country in the world and one of the few of all countries in the world that does not provide health coverage for all of our people. And we're one of the few modern countries that, this is surprising, don't allow citizens to carry their own health records with them. That's why we need an electronic health system. When my son went off to college in 2004, 
I got an ad from a company for $19.95 a year. I could load his health information onto the internet in case he went to a study abroad and needed access to the information. That should be how it works. If you're a, if you're a military person or a veteran, that is how it works. The VA health system all across this country now has seamless health communications of all veterans being served by the VA health system all across the country. If you're a veteran and you go to clinic in Seattle at the VA hospital, the people in Philly can pull it right up and uh, continue your care. Uh, if you're in the military, uh, you will carry your own and your family members' health records from one duty assignment to the next. So we have samples of this in our country, but I don't think we have trust of people <laughs> in our country enough to let them carry around their own health records. When I lived in Japan uh, in the mid-80s and had my son there, I did own my own health records and his. And I, that's when I became aware of this. We spend more than any country in the world on health care, 17% of GDP. And yet our life expectancy is not the longest, nor our infant mortality the lowest. And with that, I want to show you some interactive graphics that I have for you. <coughs> so, oh, that's as big as it's going to get. I can, I can show you uh, health spending. Let me get the map. Uh, let me get, no, let me get, let me get, let me go back to the chart. Total health spending per person in U.S. dollars by infant mortality. So Japan is one of the countries with the lowest infant mortality in the world. trying to find us. Uh, I should have played with this more. Total health spending. Okay, we have to be. All right, this isn't working well. I'll look at the other one and see if I, I get it better. Okay, life expectancy and total health spending per person. I have it better in other ways. All right, let me show you in other ways. Sorry. I'll get back to that. We have some international rankings of U.S. health care that come to us from the World Health Organization. Another great site for looking at health care across countries is the CIA, the Central, uh, Central Intelligence Agency website, has great health information, just as an FYI to you. So WHO ranks France as having the best care in the world. They rank us at number 37. The worst in the world on record is Myanmar. And the way they look at health care is access, access, both financial and physical access to care, as well as outcomes and people's general satisfaction with the care that they get. So, we s given w that we spend more than any country in the world and we rank 
37, would you say that we're getting our money's worth? I mean, that's a basic question. Okay, now I have some better graphics for you. So here's a graphic that shows life expectancy at birth from the OE, Organization of Ec Economic <coughs> uh, Development, an international voluntary organization. So we've got life expectancy in the United States at 78.7 years across all demographics. We've got the average in the OECD member countries, of whom there are 34, at 80.1 years. And the best in the world right now is Switzerland, coming in at 82.8 years. <coughs> when we look at life expectancy at birth and health care spending, this shows you better than I was able to do with my cool interactive graph. We're spending the most, but we've got all these countries that are doing better than us in life expectancy. We can break it down by gender. One of the, one of the disparities we have is that if you are a female, you have about five years more life expectancy than if you are a male in this country, and in all countries. Any thoughts about why that is true? What's with males? They don't last as long. <laughs> What's that about? Yeah? Uh, not anymore in our country. Not anymore. In fact, women are more represented in the labor force now than men after the recession. Interestingly, you're saying that, I don't know if that's a positive or a negative, but we say, you know, women talk, men drink and fight. How's that? That's not so good, but yeah. Like smoking and eating habits? Okay, sadly, the girls are catching up in smoking. We are now almost at parity, but historically, yes, that's been true, that more drinking and more smoking happened in males. The bigger culprits happen to be driving fast, guns, fighting, um, and being more risk-taking. <coughs> and females all over the world are more attuned to getting health care for prevention than males, probably related to our childbearing function. You know, we're all attuned to that. Got to take care of that bod because it's going to grow little people someday. Um, Let's look at infant mortality rates. Oh, yes, infant mortality rates. So uh, here's America. Infant mortality rates. Uh, again, males don't do so well as babies, and that's true across the board. There's some um, immune factors in that. You know, male protein is different from mom's female protein, and so there's some rejection stuff that goes on. But um, but in any event, look at the fact that you've got better infant mortality in Mexico than in the United States. That's surprising because their economy is behind ours. So we would expect that that would not be the case. 
you can look at specific diseases. Disease from heart, uh, death from heart disease. Japan is best in the world. Is it because they're all skinny and they eat healthy? Oh, they're starting to catch up with us in obesity. Uh, healthy eating might be part of it. They're big into fish. But um, access is probably the biggest factor in this, um, in this disease. Cancer mortality. Let's find America right here. We again are not doing as well as Mexico. Ah, how can this be? We're much wealthier, much higher GDP. Prevalence of diabetes. Okay, there, uh, <coughs> Mexico is way behind us. But look at uh, the United States with 9.6 diabetics per 10,000 people. No, I'm sorry, it's percentage, it's percent of the population, 9.6% of the population, kind of tied into our one-third obese, two-thirds overweight or obese, kind of tied together. And then look at Iceland, the least diabetic population on Earth, Sweden, self-reported overweight among 15-year-olds, I just spoke to that, uh, here we are. We're leading the pack in overweight in our youth. Netherlands and uh, the Russian Federation are laggards in obesity. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> okay, so if we look at how much we spend, and this is the most recent stuff I could get, 2013 information from WHO per person on healthcare. Look at this difference between Japan, who lives five or six years longer than us on the average, and the United States, Switzerland, Netherlands, France, Great Britain. So that's my case that we're not getting our value for dollars. Does anybody want to, I'm going to stop for a minute and see if anybody wants to talk about this. Are there any things here you notice that you want to talk about or that you want to fight about? I'm open for that. Yeah? When it comes to spending, you were talking about research. Does that have anything to do with how when we patent medicine in the United States, those patents don't carry over to other countries that can just use that research and that medicine for a much discounted price. Yeah, that's an interesting issue that the pharmaceutical industry likes to raise for, for various reasons related to the cost of uh, research protocols and liability concerns. It costs almost a billion dollars to bring a drug to market. And um, countries all over the world I mean, our, our big pharmaceutical companies are multinational. When they are selling overseas through our big multinationals, Merck, SmithKline, what have you, their prices are far lower because of government regulation of price. That's one, you know, one of the interesting features of providing health care to all is that it is insurance company mediated in some countries like Germany and Japan. It's not the government providing health care. It is insurance company mediated, but they have tight regulations on what everybody can charge and they cut out a lot of the brokers in the middle. So it's more direct, you know, drug company to hospital, drug company to clinic and not through a bunch of middlemen. So that's one thing. But yes, there is copycatting going on and there is, you know, cheap sales of products after the patents expire. But to turn it around, 
we are now seeing states, particularly border states, passing legislation to make it lawful to go to Canada or Mexico and bring prescription drugs into the country. Technically now that's illegal. Lots of people do it. If you go to Europe, you'll go into a pharmacy in Ireland or somewhere and it's like a candy store. You can get antibiotics and you can get, you know, all kinds of stuff cheap. So people buy up large quantities of it. Perhaps your own parents or grandparents have done this and bring it home. Um, so now we have states proposing. We have congressmen taking busloads of elders in New England <laughs> over the border to buy stuff in Canada. Uh, that's a funny problem, isn't it? Because these are the same companies. These are not off-label products. These are the real deal, sold in real pharmacies for much less money. So, um, so there's, a, there's a heavy profit motive in this whole industry, and that, that's something we have to look at. So some of the characteristics of our system that make it difficult to provide access to all people and quality care to all people is that we've talked about. We are not seamlessly integrated. Your clinic isn't talking to your rehab facility, isn't talking to Bryn Mawr Hospital, isn't talking to your place back home easily. You have to elicit transfers of health records that may or may not happen accurately or efficiently. It is not centrally administered. This is a nation which has a great premium placed on states' rights. We don't want those people in Washington telling us what to do. That's been part of the debate we've had about the Affordable Care Act. Uh, we have a mix of public and private services. We have, we, so I, socialized medicine is, is, a, is a phrase that's a, a dirty word. My dad was a doctor. I remember when uh, Ronald Reagan sent out his record to, to physicians when I was a little kid talking about the evils of socialized medicine. And we were a Republican household, so that resonated. But there is a model of socialized medicine in this <coughs> country, perfect socialized medicine, and it's working really well, and that's the Veterans Administration. Centrally administered, uniform care for veterans all over the country, and they have great outcomes. And nobody ever holds that up and says, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of like that we provide really good care for our veterans. We get upset when we hear the exceptions of bad care for our veterans. So, mix of public and private services. It's a mix of publicly and privately funded payers. I am closing in on my Medicare eligibility when I'm 65. Hooray, I can't wait. Then I get to reap some of what I've paid in through Social Security all these years. If I didn't have my work record and my payment into Social Security, there would be a public cushion for me to fall back on, Medicaid. Um, when we want to implement a law, and we have an example within the Affordable Care Act, we've got 50 states plus the district plus seven territories that have to all say, okay, we're going to all do this alike. <laughs> that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. The rules for Medicaid differ, regulation of the insurance companies differ. It's very difficult to do business across state lines because we have this situation. One of the clear examples you saw of that was last summer of 2012, fall of 2012, fall of 2012, summer of 2013. I think summer of 2013. The Supreme Court m ruled on the Affordable Care Act. 
And the thing that they said was, it's all okay, but you cannot mandate that all 57 58 entities have to participate in expanding their Medicaid, right? So then we ended up with a situation where some states did, some states didn't, particularly in the South where we already have the greatest economic disparity and the worst health outcomes in the country, Mississippi leads us in all bad things. Um, those are the states that tended to opt out. I went to Mississippi last summer. My husband and I are one state away from seeing all 50 states. Oregon is the piece de resistance that happens next summer, but I had never been to Mississippi. And uh, it was amazing that the, the nice paved highway in Alabama became a much rougher road as m the minute you crossed the border. Uh, it was, it, and we were in this lovely hotel in the heart of Jackson, four blocks from the governor's mansion, looking at a block that was just bombed out. I mean, it, it was unbelievable. Nothing going on downtown there. You had to go out to the suburbs to find food. <laughs> it was just wild. Anyway, so that's an example of what happens when we cling to states' rights as a principle, which we have historically all of the years of our national existence. Insurance, as I said, for many people is tied to employment. Caught, this is another biggie. How many of you have ever had a hospitalization? Did you see the bill? Not really. OK. D d have you heard about the bill? OK. You've heard things like they charge you 60 bucks for an aspirin or you know, 70 bucks for a package of gauze pads. You need to see. You, one of the principles of uh, you know, the public should be more accountable in how they spend health dollars is that costs have to be transparent. I can't be accountable if I can't know how much it costs. So you know, one of the examples that people use when they write about this is, what if you went into Target and none of the items had a price on it, and the prices were determined by looking at you the minute you walk up to the cash register? That's what it's like when you purchase healthcare services much of the time, particularly in hospitals. So costs are not uh, transparent, and as I've noted, they are way more loosely regulated than they are in countries like Japan or Germany, which also implement a private insurance system. So then we get to disparities. So disparities are differences in quality of health care among minority groups when they have similar health insurance and the same access to health care, and when there are no differences in groups' needs and preferences for treatment. That's the government's definition of disparities. They result in measurable differences in outcomes. But I want to back up and ask you what comment you might have on demographic differences in outcomes. We have marked the health, the longest uh, lifespan in this country is Caucasian women. The worst is African American men. And we have neighborhoods in some of our cities where the life expectancy of an African American male is about the same as the life expectancy of a person in a country like Bangladesh. Not good, like around 50. We have zip codes in Philadelphia where our infant mortality rate 
is comparable to countries like Bangladesh, very high. Zip codes right in this city. So if you think back to determinants, what observations could you make about racial and ethnic demographics and healthcare outcomes? Because I'm going to talk about when that's not the case in a minute. What kind of differences in these determinants of health would you expect, given what you know about discrimination in our country? No differences? You have differences in educational attainment, right? You have differences in employment and earnings. You have differences in resources in communities where people live. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Family history is important, and it, remember what I said about genomics. It's not just the DNA you got, but it's the DNA you got in combination with the air you breathe, the water you drink, the food you eat, that flip your switches, your genetic switches. So yeah, those are gifts that keep on giving. Yeah, and that's going to be important in a minute. So we, kn we know that, that our demographics feed into these determinants of health. But when the government's now talking about disparities, they're talking about, well, why, why do we have higher incidences of hypertension in African Americans no matter what? If we even out education and income, why do we still have that? Why do we still have uh, lower life expectancy? Why do African-American women still have more breast cancer when we take income and education into account? Those are the tougher questions because that's harder to analyze. We can understand the access and the environment stuff. Just look at it. You know, drive through Philadelphia, you can, you can get that. But what do we do about differences in outcomes when those things are taken into consideration or equaled out? Even, now these are, these are raw rates, infant mortality, much lower for white infants than for African-American infants. It's true to a, to a lesser extent even when you take education and income out of the equation. Well, one of the things that we're starting to, oh, let's look, at, I told you this, but you can look at these numbers. Differences by the demographic of gender and, and African-American versus Caucasian. What do you think might account for some of those differences? Those are the big, easy to think about differences. <coughs> Dietary customs, activity, environment, we've talked about some of these things. Environment, access to employment, access to information. Okay, insurance. Some minority groups are suspicious of medical advice. Have you heard any stories in your Villanova years or high school years of why minority groups might be suspicious of healthcare providers? 
that's possible. In fact, if you walk into a place and you don't have insurance, you will be billed a higher price than the people who do because you don't have an agent doing negotiation on behalf of a large population of people. So it's true. It's not a happy piece of information either. What about the case of Henrietta, what's her last name? Thank you. Uh, that's a a, an instance where deception was carried on. We ha did, did anybody see um, the movie about the syphilis research and the Tuskegee Airmen miss somebody's boys? I forget the name of the woman. Thank you. Okay. That really resonates. Back in 1992, we had a grant to go into the city. We were part of a bunch of nursing schools in the area, had a grant to go into the city and go door to door and promote vaccination of children. And, and we, we experienced, the nursing students experienced people saying, I think that's, you know, you're trying to kill my children or you're trying to harm us. There was mistrust, and I heard with my own ears somebody say, I remember Tuskegee. So we have had bad stories that we have perpetrated, and those, those stories, you know, linger in the community. We've, uh, back to the issue of roots of systemic and historic discrimination underlying these explanations. When I was a nursing student back in the early 70s, there were still hospitals in northern cities for African-American patients. There were still wards for African-American versus white patients. At New York Hospital Cornell, we had the public ward and the private ward. I mean, this was still pretty rampant in my early career. So vestige, heck, it's still in people's memory. It's in my memory, living memory. Um, groups may be less likely to understand their rights and their treatment options. Uh, we may not be providing, probably or not, we're probably not providing translation services to non-English speakers. Uh, any hospital that, or clinic that you go to will say, well, we've got the telephone access to translators. But but that's not seamless and immediate necessarily. Um, mistrust makes people delay their care, and there's perhaps bias and prejudice on the part of healthcare providers, assuming why somebody didn't get care. Easy to toss off a comment like, well, they obviously don't care about their children because they didn't come in a timely manner. Well, remember the case of, you know, taking the bus with three little kids across town and losing a day's pay. You know, other, other extenuating, extenuating circumstances. Um, we worry about, the feds worry a lot about, are we treating people in the same way? Are we making assumptions that are valid or not valid about people's desires, needs, comprehension, and ability to pay? Do we believe that explanations would not be understood? And do we pregress, pre-guess people's choices? I experienced some of this stuff when I had my son in Tokyo because I spoke little Japanese uh, and I was in a Western Catholic hospital, but most of the staff and patients were, were Japanese. So it's very difficult when you don't know what's going on and you don't know how the system works and you can't understand what people are trying to tell you. So that's challenging. Genomics is a promising area for looking at discrimination that we can't otherwise explain. 
Did anybody hear Dr. Larry Little's presentation on discrimination back in the fall that he did for the whole Villanova community? Has anyone had Dr. Larry Little? Nobody knows him. He is great. He is great. He's an African-American <coughs> professor, got his PhD at Ohio State University. And he said, there's not ever a time that a siren goes down Lancaster Avenue that he doesn't panic because he remembers being stopped and frisked and how scary that is. One of the things we know about chronic stress and how it affects our body is that each time your DNA replicates, I think of these as like the little tips on your shoelaces, you have telomeres on your strands and each time the chromosomes replicate, the telomeres shorten just a little. The rate at which your telomeres shorten is related to the rate at which we age physically. So people who are very old and look very young, they have great telomeres, <laughs> nice long ones. People who look way older than their years, so like some of those don't smoke posters that show shriveled up old ladies that are only 40, they have really done harm to their telomeres. And one of the things we know is that stress as well as environmental stressors such as toxins have an impact on your telomeres with the replication of your chromosomes. So th this is a very promising area of research into why health disparities persist even when we generate more uh, minority healthcare professionals, even when we are factoring out education and income, that there is still uh, these kinds of differences at the cellular level, so that it's interesting. So, to kind of bring this to a wrap, some of the ways that, um, that healthcare and service systems can address disparities include advocacy, working very hard to grow the number of same-race providers of care, providing translation services, mm -hmm. um, having educational materials at, a, at an appropriate reading level in a variety of languages, providing cultural sensitivity training. These things seem so obvious, but it's hard to get them implemented. What are your thoughts on what can we do to make health and social services more available and more equitable for more kinds of people? Yeah. Yes. It was exactly my thought. That's amazing. Have you had experience with that? I am I remember before Gen Senator John Heinz's helicopter crashed, we were working on a project to accomplish <laughs> just that. Uh, the, the brand spanking new idea that we should have clinics that had vans that went to the workers and that we should have access in the evenings and on Sunday with transportation. What a big, brilliant idea, right? <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. What, when you have interned with the law school, what have you seen? Um, well, I used to teach court exam interpreter translator for the 
Mm. So I just am the middleman, relaying information back and forth. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense of people's ability to grasp what's going on? Mm -hmm. Working the system. I can tell a funny story on myself as a privileged person. When I was living in Japan and I had my baby there in 1986, and the pediatrician didn't speak English. The OB guy did his residency in Pittsburgh. He was fabulous. Um, but the, the pediatrician didn't speak any English. And I don't know if you'll know what this means, but all, the only thing she could say to me about my baby boy was, head too big. So I burst into tears, what? This is terrible. Anyone know what that means? Hydrocephalus, big, bad neurological problem. Well, I was, you know, the emotional new mother. <laughs> so I called my dad, who's a physician in Ohio. Oh, my baby's head is too big. You know, and he said, well, how long is the baby? <laughs> He's very long. <laughs> and he said, well, put it together, you know. <laughs> but I was having the fear reaction because I didn't understand the whole story. Because she couldn't communicate to me the whole story. So, tiny little happy outcome. People also turn to their children to do translating about health matters. That's kind of a sensitive issue where you've got, you know, somebody who might be eight or ten years old talking to people about highly sensitive and highly personal information because that's who speaks English, not mom or dad or grandma. What are some other thoughts you have about doing better at serving diverse populations? Yeah. I think one thing I see at work is that you have like the clone uniform and honor unit, but there are very few nurses who actually know how to work them. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Attentive to safety for all people. Yeah. Good example. Any other things you can think? Yeah. Absolutely. One of the aims of the Affordable Care Act is to push more care out of hospitals into community settings. And it's only when we see where people are and where they live and where they live with their health status that we can understand what's appropriate to tell them to do. Here's an example. Sometimes in a maternity setting, the nurse will give the family a <laughs> list of all the stuff you need to take care of the baby. Now, this looks very different in a Bryn Mawr than it looks in a West Philadelphia. And uh, it's possible to have a healthy, happy little baby if you can't afford a crib. You can take out a dresser drawer, put it on the floor, line it with blankets, very safe, costs nothing. <laughs> But we don't think in those terms, you know. Or you can, you can put a baby down in a bathtub with no water in it, right? 
<laughs> line, the, line it with blankets, put the baby down in there. Uh, very safe, costs nothing. But you, if you don't have a sense of their context, you're going to say, well, here's the list and Nordstrom's has it all. <laughs> That's so irrelevant. It, it, uh, and and you, you can laugh at that, but people, people do stuff like that. Any other thoughts? Any questions? Okay. Well, I hope I've been provocative. And I hope that, um, that you'll look, when you enter healthcare yourself, I hope you'll start to look with new eyes at, at how it's being delivered and how accessible is that. And I thank you for giving me an hour of your time. Thanks a lot. <laughs>